trolling, trolling for ten bangers. Trolling, trolling for ten bangers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stop that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. and thanks for joining us. Today we're releasing a discussion we recorded earlier in 2020 with Ted Richards. Ted is perhaps most widely known for his professional football career with his 10 years playing for the Sydney Swans. He now works at Six Park, which is an automated investing platform where he's got a keen interest in finance and a specific interest in behavioural finance. He also hosts his own podcast called The Richards Report and there's a link in our show notes if you check it out when you finish this episode. We actually spoke to Ted earlier in 2020, and at the time we recorded, the markets were just coming back from a huge crash after COVID, and there was a lot of volatility as the virus was spreading around the world. Since then, the markets have returned to their previous levels and even higher, but as we released this, even in the last few days, there's been a lot of market volatility again. It's incredible to see how fast, fast things change and how far they can move. Whilst this has been, was recorded previously, and regardless of where we are in the cycle, there's some really interesting content in the conversation. We talk about people's individual behaviours and investment decisions and how sometimes trying to time the market can result in underperformance. We talk about some of the common behavioural biases and how that can impact investment decisions with a few footy anecdotes thrown in there at the end as well. Well, that's enough of an introduction, so let's get on with the show. Today we're talking to Ted Richards. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, not because of your least your footballing background, but because of the work you've been doing with Six Park. Um, do you want to talk us through, I guess, just a bit of a background and your initial interest in finance and investing? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Sam and Joel. Um, yeah, so I, I, um, I got in, uh, as you, as you um, uh, mentioned, I, I've got a background in football. I, I got drafted when I was 17 and um, was very lucky to, to start to um, get a bit of a, a paycheck and a, a salary from football. And I started to to look at some options as to kind of what I could do with my money outside of just putting it in a online savings account. And, and that's probably what elicited um, the interest and um, uh, what would then become a passion for investing because, um, yeah, I, I really loved it. I never did any um, economic or accounting subjects at school, um, but I went on to do a Bachelor of Commerce you know, from, this, from this passion. Um, and went on to do to do a master's in applied finance and yeah thoroughly knew that when i retired from football back in 2016 that this is the next challenge that i wanted to move into and um uh, i joined a business by the name of six park and um that was uh uh over you know over three years ago now and um absolutely loving it i i really do enjoy investing it's a passion it's a life skill that you consistently need to keep working at. And um, I guess very, yeah, very quickly, that's a, a snapshot of my story. Oh, cool. And 
I guess more generally, you were studying whilst you were playing footy, were you? Is that something that most football players do, is sort of study something alongside as well? Uh, I wish it was, but no, no, I was, the, I was probably an exception. I, to be fair, I had some fantastic um, mentors and role models that I looked up to. I was drafted to the uh, Essendon Bombers back in 2000, and there are a couple of guys there, uh, Chris Heffernan, Mark Bolton, uh, even James Hurd, uh, who we had a rostered day off from football um, midweek and these guys wouldn't go and hit the golf course or go surfing or whatever they they'd, they'd go into uni and um, and some would go go off and do work and I at a very young age recognized that what a fantastic quality to have even though these guys are being very well paid and the, the champions in in their 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 game that they could recognize the benefits of upskilling themselves for something that uh, would be the, the next chapter of their life. And I really looked up to them and, and that's uh, why I studied. I, I st- admittedly, I studied part-time. It wasn't full-time, but um, you know, had a full-time job in, in terms of professional football. And, um, and then when I finished the Bachelor of Commerce, which it took a while, um, admittedly, um, yeah, knocked over the, the Masters too. And um, I always thought, how good is this? This is something that um, I've, I've knocked over two degrees. I'm done with study now. But personal development um, is so important, especially if you're after a, uh, in a career like investment management where you never stop learning. So. Um, um, even though I've, I've done those two, two degrees, I, I put a strong emphasis on personal development and further education. Um, I, uh, two years ago, uh, did a behavioral economics course at Harvard Business School and um, keep look, looking as to how I can um, further and improve my, my investing and um, uh, approach to decision making. Oh, cool. Yeah, because that behavioural economics is something that we yeah we want to cover off and talk a bit about today. But just to stick with, I guess, some of the stuff in the ancient past, do you remember any sort of notable investments that you made when you were starting out or learning or any great successes or disasters that got you hooked? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a rite of passage in, that in terms of when you start investing, you need to make it's, – it's not fair if you go straight into successes. And if, if you do, it's, it's, um, it's probably more luck than um, – um, then I guess uh, all the all the homework. But I, I I made what were some expensive lessons. I was susceptible to um, uh, I guess hearing about stocks that someone heard from a mate from a mate, and you know putting little positions on some small uh, small cap gold miner that um, I knew very little about and quickly here um, learnt that the uh, these don't play out as necessarily as, you, as you'll hear but I guess the, um, the the first one that I probably started to um, I, re- I read Peter Lynch's book one up on Wall Street and uh, it was written back in the 80s and, and that's all about trying to identify opportunities that you can see before a um, an analyst or a professional uh, institutional investor may recognize and at the time, I was recognising that I, I could see bonds undies, um, a lot of places that um, was, was kind of new into it in Australia. And, and um, I guess 
I, I took a I looked into them a bit and could see that they were owned by Pacific brands and decided to make an investment on that thesis. Um, admittedly, my due diligence pretty much ended there. I didn't look into, um, one, I didn't look into evaluations and I certainly didn't look into um, uh, the other aspects of Pacific brands because even though uh, bonds um, was actually going quite well, Pacific brands and many other um, retail brands that weren't going well and uh, the losses that those businesses were incurring were, were far, uh, far more significant than anything bonds was contributing at the time. So stock went backwards. And I, I, um, I, um, I, I look back there and, and think it was a, a valuable, somewhat expensive lesson, but uh, a necessary lesson. Yeah, terrific, Teddy. So obviously kind of leading you down the path to now, probably why you don't pick generally individual stocks and in investments. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not so much that individual example, probably the catalyst for why I've become more passive than active with my investment approach is, so after I um, finished the Bachelor of Commerce and, and, and the Masters, I started to do work in the industry whilst I was playing football. So I did two, work, two years um, in institu institutional research sales at Citigroup on the sell side. And after that, I did four years um, uh, working under a fund manager, John Sevior, uh, at his fund, Early Funds Management. And what, what these six years of working in the industry whilst I was playing football made me realise it, it is, in fact, who is on the other set, side of the trade in that these are absolute guns. These are professionals. These are analysts with small sectors and industries that they focus in on day after day. And what, what was I bringing to the table that they didn't already know? What was, what was inside my circle of competence that I could, uh, what was it, what was my edge? And the reality is I couldn't think of something that I knew that wasn't already covered by them because I, I admittedly playing football, my priorities in life was to be the best footballer that I could and I could only allocate so much time to my private investments. And to be honest, it's probably the best thing I could do is to um, focus in on my football. And, and, um, and that's where I probably recognised that um, there, is no, there is no information that I'll be able to kind of, in terms of edge that I'll have over these professionals, the best thing is for me to get invested through ETFs and index funds and focus in on um, things that I can control in life, uh, such as focusing in on my career and reducing, um, say, the, the costs in my, li my living expenses so I can now maximise uh, the, the amounts that I can invest in the market. Fantastic. And I think... That's interesting because obviously that's quite different to the very maybe selective and stock picking stuff that some of our listeners might do when we're trawling for 10 baggers and trying to find outsized returns. But that, that edge and having to find some, some um, informational advantage or strategic advantage is really the, different, really the thing there, I think. That yeah, don't get me wrong. I, 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 get, I love the whole idea of getting a 10 bagger too. I, I think that... Uh, um, it, it elicits an emotion in me that the whole idea of picking the next 
uh, Afterpay or, 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 or whatever the company is. But it's just recognising that to think that I can get in before the professionals and the institutions and, and, and other people, especially if, if I don't have the ability to get in front of management and eyeball them and meet them face-to-face, then it's, it's, and also have a full-time job at the same time, um, just recognising that there, there are challenges there and there are benefits to um, passive investing. And the evidence actually suggests that, um, that passive investing um, uh, is actually outperforming most professionals. That's very interesting and, and something we might come back to and discuss a little bit further, further afterwards as well, just that um, even though the statistics back say one thing, people's behaviour just consistently goes against what the odds say. But maybe before we get onto that, are you able to just give us a bit more of a bit of an overview and description of behavioural finance or economics and what that means and what that encompasses? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure many are familiar with, with the term behavioural economics. It's pretty much... I think of it as like the crossover between psychology and economics, uh, because economics assumes that we're rational and we always make the, 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 the best decision that's in our own interests. Uh, but from a psychological point of view, uh, we, we know that that's not always the case. We are, can be influenced by outside noise. Um, um, what the, uh, what the area called, uh, biases and heuristics uh, in how we make, we make these decisions that can influence um, what we think is a rational decision. But, and so it's just, it's just an acknowledgement and awareness of, of how we, we make decisions. And um, I, th- I think it's so important because um, economics and investing is fantastic, but from a rational point of view, um, it's not just, a, it, it assumes that it's about, I guess um, doing discounted cash flows and um, uh, you know um, comparable comparing multiples together of um, EV multiples, PE um, PE multiples, and all these things. But um, the reality is, I think it was Howard Marks spoke about this. Uh, he he uses the analogy of a pendulum, and uh, with valuations, the pendulum is very rarely in the middle. It's normally at, at one end of the spectrum. And, and I think that behavioural economics um, is, is, is probably a bit of a, a story there in that um, how, we influ- how we're influenced by this noise can influence um, people and in, in how, how they value companies. I think that's interesting because you sort of said that there's a you know, discounted cash flow or some of the more traditional metrics that people might measure a company, but those still have human inputs into the calculations of value that people come up with for those. So there's still a lot of inherent human bias, I suppose, or human judgment and assessment that goes into a statistical calculation. Yeah, and good luck if you, you know, it's, it's hard enough to, to pick what's going to happen next quarter, uh, two quarters, but a lot of these DCFs forecast in... 10, 20, 30 years. So um, there's a bit of crystal balling that happens there. Absolutely. And I suppose maybe just to give some more context as well, are you able to run us through some of the the commonly maybe discussed sort of behavioural biases and influences that people might have heard of and a bit of an exp- explanation of what they are? Yeah, so kind of just taking a bit of a backward step, a lot of these, it's it's all to do with how we make decisions and um, we we assume that we always make 
logical, rational decisions where we consider all the options. Um, but it was Kahneman and Trevesky, which I'm sure your listeners are, are, are aware of, um, um, that wrote the, the great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, in that uh, the reality is there's kind of two ways we make decisions, um, uh, system one and system two. And, and as much as we'd like to think that we always make um, a system two decision that's slow and very considered, the way we've evolved is that sometimes we need to use shortcuts to make decisions quickly. Otherwise we wouldn't have evolved because uh, once we're out in the um, savannah, if we see some lion or, you know, we see the grass move, um, sorry, not seeing a lion, but so, so we see the grass move. If we need to consider whether we should run or should, you know, we wouldn't have evolved. So there are some, some things that are just inherent in our evolution in terms of how we can make decisions quickly. And a lot of these are shortcuts and um, uh, they call them biases or, or heuristics. And so the, the most common ones, which um, we speak about in investing are um, loss aversion, confirmation bias, um, uh, overconfidence. And uh, these are very, interesting because we've evolved over hundreds thousands of years but the the pursuit of investing in stocks uh even though it's been around a, what, a couple of hundred years or whatever um we haven't evolved to be able to um manage the decision making process differently compared to other decisions we make in life so um uh, I mentioned the loss aversion before, which uh, I'm sure many of your investors are, uh, and your listeners are well aware of right, right now in these times of COVID-19. It's just the, the power of losses that, that we feel is, is, is twice as powerful as the feeling we get when we, we gain something. And, and um, that's probably... And that can influence your decision making in terms of whether um, whether you choose to possibly possibly sell out at the worst possible time. And you talked about confirmation bias there as well. Is that sort of the opposite of loss aversion? Yeah, it's it's not so much the opposite in terms of uh, it's well, I guess the opposite would be the, um, someone that's irrationally exuberant and and um, just so positive about. And, and, and so positive about um, any benefit and not caring about losses. But um, confirmation bias is, is, is like, to be honest, it's probably, it's relevant to, to so many other things outside of investing. I, I think it's very relevant when it comes to politics and that's where we put the conclusion first um, as opposed to the evidence. And when we will put the conclusion first, we then, we look for all the um, evidence to support that conclusion and discount any anything that differs from that confirmation. So um, I'm not sure when this podcast bot might be released, but um, right now, say um, as an asset class, what's what's been performing quite well and quite poorly. Say um, say gold. Gold has been performing quite well, and um, I think a lot of people are. are are probably investing in in gold right now, and it, it's it's easy 
to, to, to find a lot of advantages there. And, and gold can provide um, a great um, level of diversification to a, to a portfolio. Um, uh, but maybe there is a, a bit of a, a recency bias in terms of um, how people are perceiving um, the value that gold might be able to provide in a portfolio going forward. Um, they may be discounting um, other things that can happen. Um, so it's, I'm probably just thinking on the fly there about that one asset class about at gold, but confirmation bias is, is, is serious in a nutshell, it's, it's just where you discount things that um, uh, probably should be take, needed to be taken into account. Yeah, cool. And I suppose um, obviously a lot of our listeners in our show are individual stock selectors or would like to think that they're going to try and gain an edge over the market with that. Are there any sort of comments or observations you'd make, whether that's sort of academic or the research to say what some of those common um, reasons that people do lose against the, the market more generally? Yeah, well, I, I think... Uh, there's a lot to talk about there and what I should probably and just revisiting a bit, a bit what I just spoke about before with confirmation bias it is so hard to sidestep that you almost need to go out of your way to if you are an active stock picker try and um, put a system in place so that you are uh, limiting your exposure to confirmation bias. Uh, I think some of the best fund managers will actually go out there and look for um, um, things that challenge their thesis and and and, and what they and they don't look for these opportunities um, so they can go and have an argument with someone. Um, they, they they look for these opportunities just to make sure that they're considering all options and. Um, uh, I guess that, that 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 is a way you can put a, um, something in place. Teddy, I think what you're saying is really, really fascinating because there's a couple of things that sort of sing out to me. The first is about going out there and challenging your opinion. And like you said, you don't go out there to pick a fight with someone, but we've often referenced with a lot of guests, if, if you're looking at uh, an investment forum, maybe going and seeing other articles to challenge your comfort zone, to test your thesis on that opposite side, come back to um, the loss aversion and fear of loss because that's um, something that's very, very reticent for a lot of people that do speculate on the market. And I think it's, it's something that I remember recalling very, very um, succinctly last year when I lost my job, you know, the, the propensity to take on risk uh, when I didn't have a job or an income uh, was far greater and I wasn't able to make the decisions I normally would and I felt sort of I was I was sort of encumbered to make logical and rational decisions. Yeah, um, loss aversion can impact people in so many different ways and, and that's, um, that's possibly why in, in times of a lot of pessimism in the world, um, there can be opportunities in having somewhat of a contrarian view um, because we do know from a historical point of view that um, when you're looking over the mid to long term that uh, from an investing point of view markets do recover but um, time and time again when crashes occur um, people sell out at the worst possible time 
even though we know that the market will recover. Um, people see the headlines in the article, in the in the papers, and and on the news, and and it it really influences their behaviour. And um, so it, it it is a powerful emotion, both investing and in, in other parts of life too. So Teddy, I was just thinking about stop losses when you were talking, and. Recently, I found myself moving a stop loss even after it's set. So I'd sort of broken my rule. Is that an example of loss aversion? Yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, I, I can't speak too much about it, but um, I do know that there are what you're doing is creating a rules-based approach to your investing, and there there can be fantastic benefits in in putting rules in place because the temptation will always be there to um for you you know to 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 make a decision at the time and, and to waver and that's it's it's similar to um um the approach that we we, we saw um uh with moneyball and, and billy bean in that removing that gut emotion um and and having a systemized rule, rules approach to decision making um, can be great. So I can't speak specifically whether um, um, about stop losses because it's it's not something that I I I, I use. But um, um, I, I think it, it can provide a great way of um, protecting yourself from being your own worst enemy sometimes. And I suppose I think the thing which is interesting there is the observation that even setting a rule and thinking you've got something set in place. You're still just changing it on the fly, Sam. And then, um, what was the point of the rule if the rule doesn't even stick? Yeah, well, I, I do know of people that are, um, have, have created a great rule to protect themselves when it comes to investing is um, <clears throat> having a very long and unique password for their investment online investing account, and then tucking it away somewhere in the garage or downstairs or even in the attic. So it requires significant effort just to be logged into their account. So um, people aren't checking their online share account like they might their Facebook account or something like that. I think sort of Sam touched on it a bit there with uh, personal anecdote, but what's I found interesting the last couple of months with the massive market gyrations is that sort of the wealth effect kicking in where maybe, well, I've thought of myself, you know, my, my asset base drops, um, your income, your potential income streams wither away, your job might be looking un uncertain and then the decision-making process changes quite dramatically. I just wonder if you had any thoughts on from more of a herd mentality or like you know, when everybody's thinking one way, whether that's pessimistically or optimistically, how that changes things? Yeah, um, there's a bit to speak about there. One, one thing you, you mentioned there was the, the wealth effect. And I can remember um, uh, whilst I was playing and doing work um, on the buy side at um, Early Funds Management. And these companies like Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi, um, Nick Scarley, uh, for those not familiar with Nick Scarley, the, the, the furniture um, uh, maker and distributor, these companies were a great beneficiary of the wealth effect that was has been occurring in Australia for for a long period of time. In that we've we've been um, you know, close to thirty years without a recession, and um, most likely in some form of recession right now, but um, possibly not. We'll, we'll we'll find out. And um, what I mean by here here is um, for people that own a property or an apartment, and the 
the the paper value of that that property going up, um, the the asset price going up, people feeling like they're now uh, they've got more val- uh, more wealth, and they're more likely to go out and buy themselves a new plasma TV or a new new leather couch. Um, so this is the wealth effect that we see play out in, in the last decade or so when things are being rosy and, and getting better. But you can't have the positive aspect of wealth, uh, of the wealth effect without the negative. Um, I think it was Buffett in his recent presentation said that um, you can't have religion without hell. So, um, yeah, and what I mean here is... Um, Assets can go down in value too. And um, so there can be an inverse effect on, on um, the, you know, the, the wealth effect. And that's what can lead to um, recessions and, and I'm sure um, even depressions when, when people get, get so um, uh, concerned about their spending and, and really pull back. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think that that's quite interesting to see when we get through COVID, how quickly um, people's regular spending patterns may or may not snap back. Yeah, I think it's an interesting. I had um, I was speaking to a small business owner actually recently, and they had I think a large portion of their investment portfolio in one individual stock, and it had been dramatically impacted by the by the market reactions more than the, the market more generally. And it was interesting having spoken to them a few weeks prior to then seeing that. And just even though probably their standard of living wasn't going to change, their immediate short and medium term outlook wasn't, but their psychology had, it was sort of like, oh, that that windfall that I had there, that rainy day fund is no longer there. And just their entire psychology changed. And it was just really interesting and how fast it happened. I think that speaks to what you discussed. Is their propensity to go out and spend money at, at Nick Scarley or Harvey Norman changed overnight? And how long it takes for that to come back is interesting question especially when it's on a larger scale um all right so maybe just to move on to the robo advice and what you're doing now teddy are you able to explain i suppose what robo advice is and how that can benefit or help investors with some of these issues and behavioral biases that we've talked about yeah so the the term robo advice was was uh given by the industry and it's a bit of a misnomer in that it it assumes that there's these these robots that are making these decisions but Robo advice is, is pretty much a a, a, um, a robo advisor is pretty much just a low cost way of um, getting a an internationally diversified portfolio set up according to your risk profile. So it 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 uses the best of technology to lower fees. Um, where where in the past you 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 may have had to have paid um, thousands of dollars. Um, to, to get that level of professional um, professional management. So um, it, it started um, in particular in the US, probably in the middle of the, uh, the financial crisis where it was, people were starting to be aware that they were overpaying for underperformance. Um, there was this transparency and these, the emergence of, of ETFs um, and it's got to a level now where every major US bank now pretty much has their own form of robo, robo advice um, because more and more money is moving into these, um, these, these digital options. 
we didn't really see that play out in Australia for a couple of reasons. One of which is our banks really didn't change throughout the, the global financial crisis, which was fantastic. They were, they were very resilient. Um, but the negative of that is they didn't change. And a lot of the behavior that they were able to do and, and get away with for a long period of time um, went on to be accepted and, and people continued to be charged the fees they were for, for, for the level of service they were. And it's, it wasn't until the, the Royal Commission where we had a bit of a clean out in the industry, which happened in the States 10 years ago. And um, that's, that's what we're seeing as the catalyst for um, this awareness and this, this need for increased transparency lower lower cost and um and the removal of conflicts when it comes to advice to to get people um set up um, with their own diversified portfolio and get it managed for them um and um yeah so it's 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 really helping people with a really important decision in life is is um it can be you know really influence the the quality of life that someone may have in their retirement and is it fair to say that that robo part of it is sort of automation, which is there obviously to reduce costs, but to try and remove some of the individual decision-making that people might have made? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So it all starts with a risk assessment. And instead of being done face-to-face and, and, and the high costs that that would, that would usually require, automating that and doing that online, uh, the, the account set up, um, automating that process so we can set up Macquarie cash management accounts and a trading account in their name without having someone to fill in all the paperwork, the execution of trades to get them set up instead of, I think, you know, if you go back 30 years ago, um, um, most people, most uh, stockbrokers are probably charging 50, a hundred, hundred bucks, even more to execute one trade and, and um, parts of the world now you can get, trades for free so it's 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 using technology to keep those costs low and then um um it's so much of it so many australian investors are focused pretty much on two asset classes that is stocks and property in particular aussie stocks and um and um uh, residential property and um that's all well and good but um what a diversified portfolio, a globally diversified portfolio will get you exposure to defensive asset classes too, which um, like bonds, which uh, many Australians don't invest in at all, but also other asset classes that um, they may, may typically um, not invest in at all, like infrastructure, exposures to emerging markets, exposure to international property. And putting this portfolio together so that you've got a level of diversification to protect against um, the volatility that can come, especially if you're only investing in just the one country. And I suppose just to go back to your current role, so you're working at Six Park, and that's a robo advice provider, is it? Is that? Yeah, yeah. So we're we're a, a robo advisor, which is a, a a fancy name to describe providing uh, professional online investment management. And um, so I'm, I'm director of business development at Six Park, which uh, I wear many hats. I, um, I speak with clients. Um, I create content to uh, educational content. 
Um, we're also partnering up with advisors and working with accountants. So I'm speaking with our partners and, and um, yeah, so I, I, I thoroughly love what I do. I'm, I'm you know, working in the markets every day, but by no means am I um, day trading stocks or anything like that. And you mentioned um, earlier that this is sort of the first major market correction or change that you've been through with the big sell-off in this COVID sort of spreading around the world. Is there anything you've observed in yourself or anything um, you were surprised about? Yeah, I, um, yeah I'm not so, so arrogant to think that um, this recent crash hasn't impacted me. I, um, um, you know, I've got uh, my own investments uh, with, with Six Park that, that are, have been um, affected, but also um, we're in the we're in the business of, of trust, and, and um, we we are we 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 um, we really respect the trust that people put with us when they uh, invest with us. So I, from time to time, have looked at my phone in the middle of the night just to check on how international markets are going, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that that does that. And um, I think I, I do that partially because um, uh, you know deep down I love it, but also um, um, it's you know it, it's important because um, um, our, our, I'm aware that our clients like to be updated um, and uh, managing their emotions and expectations is important. So uh, that that's probably the, the the main way I've noticed. Uh, and my wife probably noticed me uh, checking the checking the stocks in the middle of the night from time to time. Now, Teddy, that was going to be my question, mate. I remember listening to one of your episodes and you said you were checking at all hours of the morning. How, how are you finding it? The clients want to be updated. Are you able to switch off at the night time? Are you, um, have you got any strategies for people like that? Yeah, I, I, I think we build up some, some goodwill uh, in over the, the last few years. Yeah, not, sorry, not goodwill, but we've been educating our clients for quite a while now. It's, um, it was actually our, our fourth birthday yesterday. So for four years, we've been educating our clients on um, the benefits of diversifying, that there's volatility, the market goes up and down. And even though um, for those first three years that the market had you know, three, three very good years, what we are seeing play out is that um, events like this do happen from time to time. And we're, we're, we're not, we're not going to pretend um, uh, crashes don't occur. And, and we do know that um, corrections happen even more. Um, so um, speaking about this um, over the last few years and um, the benefits of staying invested, um, topping up if it can, is I think it's, it's, it's held us in, in really good stead because um, uh, we've been talking about things like this for a long time, admittedly. Um, we're not going to pretend that we predicted this black swan event that there'd be some international virus that would um, uh, stop the, the the global economy um, for for however many months. Um, but um, we do know that um, even though the the story might be different for why the crash occurred, um, uh, the uh, the how they they usually play out in terms of um, afterwards and how the market recovers is, is usually quite similar. All right, Teddy, I would be remiss as a Tragic Swan fan not to ask you a few footy questions. So I've got three or four. So 
toughest full forward you have played against and why? Uh, well, tough full forward has a lot to do with the, the supply that they're getting. So um, if you look at Nick Rewalt, we, we had a very similar career in terms of duration. For the first half of Nick's career, he was a part of one of the best teams in the competition in, in the St Kilda. Um, um, it was actually probably more so the, the middle third. But um, for that, that last third of his career, St Kilda really dropped off and, and, and um, were, were down the bottom of the ladder. And you wouldn't say it was Nick's fault Nick just wasn't the player that he, he previously was. It was just the fact that he was a forward not getting anywhere near the supply. So I always say when I'm, when I'm asked that question, it's, it's a, a lot to do with, um, one, whether they're a good forward or not, and two, the supply that they're getting. So um, be it a Buddy Franklin when he was at Hawthorne, you know, a, a great player in a champion team, or um, Jonathan Brown it, when, um, at the, when he was playing when Brisbane Lions were at their peak. They're, they're the two examples of, of when a, you get that combination of a, of a champion and, and a champion team. Yeah, that's a terrific answer, Teddy. And I think you're bringing a lot of academic uh, and your education to your analysis of footy, which is good. But it, was there a particular tough customer and you're like, Jesus Christ, this guy's kicking a bag of goals here and I'm getting pelters from, from my teammates? I've, you know, was there one player or one particular match you're like, God? So, Sam, you're being very generous in, um, in saying, was there, was there one time that happened? Um, I think there's multiple times that that happened, and I, I do my best to um, to to put those out of my memory. But um, uh, the reality is, um, if you play in the last line of defence, there's going to be some times when that, that happens. Um, there's a game that sticks out for me where I played against um, Drew Petrie, who was a, a, a very good forward for the Kangaroos at the time. He kicked four goals on me in the first quarter, and I can remember doing the maths, just thinking, oh, he's, he's on track to kick 16. And, and uh, um, it's funny how, like, you know, you're obviously proud of the games that um, you play very well and you dominate your opponent, but you can equally be proud of the games like that where you're up against it and you don't get off to a great start, but you, you kind of keep it together. And I, I think I kept him goalless for the rest of the game. And, and, and sometimes you can, you can draw a bit of, satisfaction from those games when um things may not be working working for you but yeah kind of dig in show a bit of grit and and um, work through it no that's a terrific answer teddy but you've kind of thrown me an analogy back as often speculators like joel and myself we're often put in a very bad situation and sometimes how you can mitigate that or lessen the loss um so that your capital is intact for the next one Going back to that being generous, I think maybe I've got a bit of confirmation bias about my Swannies, so we'll, we'll tie that one in as well. <laughs> uh, best player you played with, and that can be at the Swans or the Bombers. Um, all right. Uh, the three that stick out uh, which at, at the Bombers and the Swans is, um, is Buddy Goods and James Hurd. And those three stick out. They are champions, but... They just step up in big games. Um, I, buddy, what, what comes to mind is his freakish abilities. But I, I can just remember um, just watching James Hurd and Goods um, show real leadership on field by 
when the team needed it, they were the ones that really um, stepped up and um, forced their impact on the game and, and made a statement to the opposition. And I don't know if you guys are watching it, but I'm, I'm currently um, working my way through um, The Last Dance, uh, the, the Chicago Bulls documentary on, on Netflix. And, um, you know, I, I know I'm using the example of one of the greatest athletes of all time in Michael Jordan to, to, um, um, to demonstrate this, but that's what he, he was, his ability was in, in terms of um, when the challenge came, he could push back and push back to a degree that um, he could drag his team over the line sometimes. And that's what some of the champions were, were able to do, like Buddy Goods and um, Purdy that I played with. Yeah, that's another terrific answer. And it's on my list as well of things to watch for sure. Uh, Ted, how about 2012, the injury to your ankle in the prelim final against Collingwood? Uh, how bad was it? And were, were you afraid you wouldn't play in the granny? And how many injections did you need? Yeah, so um, I I um, I ruptured my syndesmosis, which is a bone between the uh, uh, the tib fib joint at the bottom of your leg that kind of keeps those two bones together. And um, I probably would have been out for like a uh, a month or two, um, uh, but with the going into the grand final, um, there was a need to. To, to put it all on the line and, and get myself up for that game. So, um, yeah, I had a lot of injections throughout that week in terms of um, uh, draining it because it was just um, because it was ruptured so bad. It was just full of swelling, um, and then also uh, uh, the uh, the anti-inflammatory um, uh, drugs to kind of settle it down, and. Um, the, the plan was to go to go into the game is to was to um, lock up the ankle so that I could um, could really you know still run on it and um, but because of the the injections and the, and the pain relief uh, the, the the local anesthetics I think they only last about 20 25 minutes so it would have to uh, top it up every quarter just to ensure that I could get through the game and um, uh, as you can imagine, I was incredibly nervous about this because I was going into the game playing on arguably one of the greatest players of all time in Buddy Franklin, who's six foot seven and freakishly agile. And I was being told they're going to just numb my ankle and, and lock it up so I could um, still stand on it and move okay, but I wouldn't be able to feel it. And um, yeah, so uh, anyway, long story short, um, uh, I got through the game and, and um, you know, we, we won the game. And it's, as you can imagine, it's, it's been one of the highlights of my life. Yeah, fantastic. I, I think my listeners will start getting um, upset with me because it's a bit of swans gushing. But um, I think a lot of people forget in 05 and 2012 that that blood's culture of hard work and pushing through injuries. And that's, if that's not a, a sign of a bit of a champion and for, for one season, mate, you've got to take that. Last question. Um, you've got your kids or your... You know, you're 10, 20 years down the track and you're sipping over, you're, having, you're sitting down, having a beer. Apart from that grand final, what is the first match you go back to over the highlight reel and go, geez, that was a good game. I want to watch this again. Uh, okay. Um, that's a good question. Uh, in, 
In 2000, it was my last year. In 2000, uh, all right, in, I'm getting a bit nostalgic here. Um, in 2016, it was my last year. And I, I, deep down, I knew it was my last year. Um, I, I, as, I, as I mentioned before, I played on the last line of defence and um, I had a dream the night before that I was going to kick a goal and um, I told my wife and my son um, about it and, and they came along to the game. And I had, an, I had a day that everything was just coming off and, and I, I, I kicked this goal in the last quarter and, and um, um, it was incredibly special um, to, to, to know that uh, my wife and son were there to, to see it happen and um, so I was, I was pretty excited about that and um, after the game I actually found out they, they went home at three-quarter time and, but, and missed, missed the goal. But <laughs> pretty, pretty good, pretty good when, I, when I thought they were there. <laughs> Um, that was just because um, uh, yeah, he was so so young, but um, so ha- have a bit of a laugh about that. But um, yeah, that that'd be the game. Brilliant, Teddy. Brilliant. My parents will be very happy. Um, finally, um, where can our listeners get in touch with you uh, or at Six Park if they're interested in some rural advice? Yeah, so um, it's completely free to take the Six Park risk assessment. Um, so just go to www.sixpark.com.au and, and we'll ask you um, roughly a dozen questions to take into account your investment horizon, your appetite for risk and your investment experience. And we'll put together an, an, a globally diversified portfolio according to how you answer those questions. And, and I know a lot of your listeners are very active. They like taking um, Active positions in in stocks, be it you know small cap or um, or larger blue chip shares, um, but what we are seeing with clients is that these it's by no means are these two two investment strategies um, mutually exclusive. You can have both in that you can have your active positions where um, you're confident um, that that this can. Um, be a great investment, but you can also have that low-cost diversified approach just to provide it um, a, a different a different exposure to different asset classes and provide that that possibly lower volatility. So, um, yeah, and and the fact that it's 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 all done online means that the fees that are at a fraction of the cost that uh, many many um, providers typically charge. So, for example, on a on a $20,000 investment with Six Park, the fees are half a percent, which is just $100 a year. And um, that, that actually includes all the trading fees. So um, that's that. And the, uh, the other thing which you, uh, you actually mentioned is uh, my podcast, The Richards Report. So if you're interested in um, um, further podcast content to, to subscribe to, apart from um, uh, trawling for 10 baggers, I um, uh, have a listen to The Richards Report. Yeah, definitely, Ted. That's quality stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Teddy. That's been a great summary and um, a bit of background about, obviously, you and the markets and, just as importantly, behavioural psychology and some things that people might want to consider. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Ted. All the best, mate. Speak soon. No worries. See you, guys. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.